We, uh, we've been going through John uh, for a while, and at the risk of saying the same thing every single week, uh, I remind you, we went through the whole Bible a couple years ago, and uh, then we decided this year, if the whole Bible really is, uh, find its climax, find its center point in Jesus, if it's a whole story connected to point to King Jesus, then we should know Jesus. We should know his words, and we should read them. And so we've been doing that. Um, part of the motivation for us to get into John was I got really excited in our Shepherding Council about preaching John 8. The idea of the devil being the father of lies was rippling so much into To me, my family, the, the counseling practices and things. I was doing, and it just was everywhere, and as the shepherd team, we kind of talked, we said, hey, let's just go through John all together. So as I said last week, I've been just chomping at the bit to get to John 8, which is why you're getting about three or four sermons on John 8 uh, as we go through it, because this is a big deal. Um, Several weeks ago, we talked about... truth and freedom, and how Jesus talked about what that looks like, and you'll know the truth. If you abide in his words, you are his disciple, and you'll know the truth, and truth will set you free. And then Nathan came and talked to us about what does it mean to be a father, all this father language in here, how do we know God the Father, talked about presence, which we'll talk a lot about today as well. Last week, we just uh, kind of overspan sociology, history, philosophy, psychology, to say, hey, it turns out humans have always been distracted and pulled away by lies and what lies look like. And we uh, read Colossians 3 last week saying, hey, we need to uh, let the words of Christ dwell richly among us. This week, we want to uh, really dive into Satan, devil stuff and how we make sense of that and how we don't overemphasize that. It, it turns out that as much as we want a bad guy in, in kind of where our culture and society gone, we want the bad guy. So we tend to make the Bible say a whole lot of things about Satan, devil, and demons that might not quite be there. And, and as kind of a spoiler, the, the Bible isn't about Satan and demons. The Bible's about the Lord and King Jesus. And so when you find that there's not enough information to wet your whistle about Satan and demons, and it's left kind of vague, that's, that's, I believe, is intentional. I think God wants us to put the emphasis on him. And so we're going to get into that. I would encourage you to grab a Bible. Uh, we're going to have some uh, less of the scriptures on screen this morning because of some maddening technical difficulties. If you see anyone in the tech booth today, give them six high fives, no less, uh, maybe seven if you're into number perfection, because those guys deserve it. They've been working hard to get us any thing on the screen. Uh, no, later. High fives later. That was the, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, you can clap for them now. Sorry. Sorry. I ruined that for you all. Um, we uh, grab a Bible. If you don't have one, uh, there's a hardback black one like this in the seats in front of you. Get it in front of your ocular region so you can process the words like we say every week. This is what matters. These are the words of God and this is what we want to focus on. My words. I'm an excitable person. I say things. I flap my arms. Sometimes I do foreign accents, but those things come and go. All right. What really matters is the Word of God. That's what lasts forever. So get that in front of you. We're going to be in Genesis 3. Say Genesis 3. Matthew 4. And Colossians 3. Fantastic. That's what we're going to do. We're going to start here. What comes to your mind when you think about the devil or Satan? Just just holler at me. Just hot takes. Ready, go. Evil. Death. Darkness. Lies. Serpent, hey, okay. Fear, deception. Smelly armpits, okay. Probably. Probably. It's always hot in cartoons. Red? Someone say red? I like that. Huh? Yeah, yeah, pitchfork, horns, the whole lot. Uh, sophistication. 
So I wanted to, uh, I, I heard another uh, pastor do this, I started looking into the history of art in how this creature was interpreted. Our home base is that Jesus says the devil's the father of lies. Uh, we're going to read John 8 again here a little bit. As Jesus says the devil's the father of lies, I started looking at different history of artwork uh, up to even the most modern. We had art commissioned for this week, ladies and gentlemen. And so we're going to go through it. Let's start in, um, let's see, 1150. This is St. Mark's Basilica. This is a Romanesque style of a, uh, before they were doing a lot of painting and stuff, they'd etch this into stone. And so this is um, someone's depiction of the temptation of Christ. And so you see the, the three temptations, the angels that ministered to Christ. We'll read this story here in a little bit in Matthew 4. Uh, go back, Joe. Uh, and so we see the three, three demons there for the three temptations. And you notice this is kind of a, it's hard to tell this creature. It it's, seems negative. Horns, wings. Again, this is um, in the 12th century, early 12th century. So this is way back in. A little bit later, we get uh, closer to uh, the Reformation. This is uh, Sandro Botticelli's The Temptation of Christ. Now, look, as you notice, um, as the Romanesque style kind of moved and you get more into um, the, the Reformation times uh, and all that, this was in the 1400s, 15th century, then you start seeing the devil looks what? What does the evil one look like now? But what specifically? He looks kind of like a, a monk. Isn't that interesting? Looks like a, a deceptive religious leader. Ah, and he's standing on the pinnacle of the temple or, or somewhere, and he's, he's guiding, deceiving. You can see there's a little wing up there. It kind of got cut off. Uh, going forward in history some, <laughs> this is Reformation. This is uh, uh, so interesting. Uh, this is a guy named Erhard Schoen, uh, however you pronounce that. This is entitled The Devil with Bagpipes. And now you're getting really, this is post-Dante's Inferno, which had a huge, uh, huge impact on how we view any of this, right? And I would argue so much of how you think about Satan and demons is more impacted by by Dante's Inferno, then actually what the Bible says, that's fine, challenge accepted, you can go look at that. But notice, this is some evil, creepy creature that looks like a demon, what else could that be, right? And it's playing the minds of, some people argue this is Martin Luther, actually if you study it, that's, it's actually just in general some sort of monk of the time, it wasn't meant to be specifically Martin Luther, but that was the idea, is that like, hey, the religious leaders, they're corrupt, they're corrupt by the devil, and you're all like, uh-huh, yeah, that's the tension, isn't it? Reformation stuff, carrying on. This is most recent. This is in uh, the late uh, 19th century by Ari Schaefer. Now what do you notice? The devil looks more like a human. Michelangelo depicted uh, the devil this way, so did Leonardo da Vinci. Um, it's got more of a human flavor, distracting from Jesus, trying to point, deceive, hey, go this way sort of thing. Fascinating. Next. Does anyone, it kind of looks hard, does anyone remember this? 2004. Has anyone seen this movie? The Passion of the Christ. Does anyone just really dislike haunts them, keeps them awake at night? I remember seeing this, uh, I was a senior in high school, I was like, oh my gosh, that is, whoa. This was an actress named Rosalinda Salantano, and she played Satan in The Passion of the Christ 2004. Now, I asked an artist in our congregation, say, hey, uh, Miss Addie Spencer, if you could just imagine what Jesus is saying in John 8 and in Matthew 4, the father of lies, what artistically comes to mind in as quick as possible, just hot takes, what do you imagine the devil to look like? Modern, here we go. Whoopow! And I love, I love this. This is, again, as Addie's processing this, um, sorry if this is so embarrassing for you. Uh, you, you, you welcomed this, though. You remember this. 
Just, he looks attractive on the outside, possibly even familiar. Ooh, interesting. Kind of got a Tony Stark vibe. Anyone? That's what I thought. Uh, he's always trying to sell us things of the world. We often know if someone is telling the truth by looking at their eyes, but we can't see his eyes. He's inviting us to join him. Now, the, the reason we do this is because I want us, as we, we start to talk about read, Jesus says in one of his most specific definitions, murder from the beginning, the father of lies in John 8. Jesus is pulling us in to something more conceptual, philosophical. Jesus isn't trying to get us with demon and horns, a used car salesman, Tony Stark. That, that's not exactly where Jesus is. But our culture imports what is dishonesty? What makes us feel manipulated? Maybe religious leaders who are corrupt by power? Maybe, maybe humans that are naked with wings that are very, very attractive looking or whatever? Maybe it's this sort of thing? We import these ideas because we understand lies and deception. I think that's so fascinating. All through Scripture, we see the devil work through isolation and lies. Say isolation. Lies. John 8, 44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil. Man, Jesus. You don't ever want to hear that from Jesus. You are of your father, the devil. And you will, uh, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would guide this time, that your spirit would give us ears to hear. May your word bear its weight on us. Teach us to further make sense of, of presence, your spirit and truth. May we be guided by you through your spirit to seek Jesus, to see all things made new. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen. For Jesus, this is all about truth and lies. Uh, at the risk of, again, saying this every week, this is all about truth and lies, the father of lies. The word devil in Greek, uh, diabolos, is the word. It's where we get the word diabolical. It's 38 times used in the New Testament. Other uh, translations of it would be the slanderer, the accuser, Jesus calls this character in the Gospels the Satan, or Hasatan in Greek. The evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the serpent of old. That sounds very Middle-earthy, doesn't it? The serpent of old. These are, notice, these are not proper names. These are titles. These are titles. And so as we have this idea of the devil, Satan's after me, Hold on, now, uh, Jesus tends to use language very, in the New Testament, I use language very different than that. It's more conceptual, more titles. And I would agree with several scholars who say, this is because naming things really matters in Scripture. And it's a nod from the Bible authors who are inspired by God to say, you know what, this creature doesn't even deserve a name. This, this collection of, of forces, however you interpret all this, whatever it is, devil, Satan, accuser, slander, the, the adversary, doesn't even deserve a proper name because that's not the emphasis. Who gets a proper name? King Jesus. Peter. People that, that get named by God to do specific things. That's so interesting. Jesus and the New Testament writers call him the ruler of this world. Archon. In Greek, it's, it's a word that means the highest ranking position in government. Here's the point. Jesus and the New Testament authors knew, and they wanted us to know, that, that this creature was the most powerful and influential in all the world. 
And we like to think that what's most powerful and influential are what we call influencers, or people who have a lot of views, or people who have a lot of voices. And, and, and the scriptures pull say, hey, actually there's a veil, there's something that, that's hiding behind all that, that, that's right there. It's the actual ruler, the actual deceiver. The devil works through isolation and lies, a murder from the beginning. Jesus ties all this to Genesis 3, right back to the beginning. And again, we come back here almost every week, but we're going to actually read it. Instead of just quoting it, we're going to talk about Genesis 3. If you want to get it open, we're going to look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. As Jesus ties this creature back, let's do a case. Let's think about who, who is the devil when he first appears before man, as we see in Scripture. And then what about when Jesus talks to Satan? We're going to look at those things. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. The devil's already beginning to isolate. He's pulling from the beginning, isolating. Hey, you should question, you should doubt this. Is this really true? He's using lies. Why, why does the devil work this way? It's, why doesn't he appear as a, a big powerhouse, just as, ah, just, just follow me. I've got cool magic tricks. I can do neat things. Why is it lies? Why is it deceptive ideas that twist us and enslave us and trap us? As Jesus mentions previously, he says, says that these lies, they enslave us. This pattern of sin enslaves us. Why does the devil do this? I would argue, and, and we've talked about philosophy, there's three ultimate questions in life. We're always asking, uh, to some degree, who is God? It's a theology question. Who are we, or who am I? It's an anthropology, identity sort of question. And what is the good life? Morality. These are three questions. And how you answer these questions interprets literally everything you do in your life. In fact, that it, it, it implies how our nation answers this, is how, how we approach the world, how, how other countries do. It's how we approach war, how we approach sexual identity, how we approach everything. We'll come back to these questions. Marriage, family, pick a thing you value. Maybe you really value playing bridge with your buddies. Everything will come back to this in some way. We're all influenced by how we answer these questions. If you say there's no God... Let's just run this for a minute. You say there's no God, uh, agnostic, atheist, wherever you kind of fall on that spectrum, then, then your theology, actually, you're still having a theology. Then ultimately, who's in charge? Who's above everything? Well, potentially, you could say it's you, but maybe some of us are so humble and say, well, it's not me, because I'm not really God. We'd say, well, it's humans. Evolutionary theory, we've all grown to this point, humanism, and we're to a point now to where we've decided what's best, and, and you are simply a bag of stardust, you've got time and chance on your side, good job, you were born on this side of major world wars and nuclear explosions and somewhat positive health care, so good for you. You just happen to be born in the right time, hooray, we've decided what's right. And then you look around and say, okay, well, if there's no God, then, then who am I? Who are we? What's our identity to, to flourish, to be happy, to, to live a basically good life, maybe. 
Well, then what is the good life? What's morality? If there is no God, if there is no standard, this is why Jesus uses terms like enslavement when he talks about this sort of pattern. Sin, trapping us. If there is no God and you're God and you choose, then the fighting never ends. Peace isn't possible. There's no way things could be made right. How could you ever possibly have a good marriage? It's all guessing. Why would you ever protest? What are you protesting? If there is no God, if there is no standard, then what makes you more right than other people? It seems kind of silly. And this is the tension. This is why these questions become ultimate questions. But this is basic logic here. If there is a design, if you look to the world around you and say, hey, something happened here. Something organized this in some way. Therefore, there must be intent. There's some rationale, some reason for that design. If there's intent, then there's morality. What you ought to do, what you shouldn't do, what the actual intention was, and therefore accountability. And because we don't want accountability, because we want to be like God, because we don't like to be controlled, we want to be ultimate authority. This is where the devil plays and works lies because it's ultimately about who's in control, about who God is. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And if you look, this is exactly what the devil does with Eve. It's so interesting. Uh, He says, who is God? Like, can you really trust God? God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. Did God really say that? What's the hidden message there? It's not even that hidden. It's pretty obvious. Can you trust God? Is daddy really going to take care of you? Is he really good? Maybe you're better. Maybe you know better than father. Maybe you should think about what you think. It's a lie. Who are you? What does it mean to be human? You could be like God. The devil lies and says, no, 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 you you don't have a specific place above creation and beneath the creator. You don't have a specific identity. You don't have a specific purpose and design. You could be whoever you want to be. You could do whatever you want to do. You could decide. You could be your true self. You You could rise above. Come from the ashes, oh phoenix. You could do whatever you want. Does this sound familiar? This isn't new or modern, church. This is the same thing that's been said from from the ancient primitive roots of what we understand to be humans. This is the same lies. Questioning what is the good life. If you see the fruit and you eat it, you'll have everything you want. Pursue your pleasures, your desires. So what happens when they rebel, when their eyes are actually open? That was the, the lie. Hey, your eyes will be opened. That was actually the truth in the lie. Hey, you, you, your eyes will be open. Their eyes are open. How, what, is, what is the result? We can read it in Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence. Say presence. From presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. The devil works through isolation and lies. And then they're found to be living in lies and absolutely isolated, hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord. If you read the story, if this is all you knew about God so far, you would know that God is a God who creates good things and who created us with his breath in our lungs to to be with him, to have a right relationship with him. They rebelled and now they can't have a right relationship. So much so they're even hiding from themselves. They got to so fig leaves, they've got to go hide. They're in hiding, they're isolated, living in lies. Here's where we want to learn. Here's where we want to land today. This is the, the entire kind of focus, premise we're bringing in. Spirit and truth. Say spirit and truth. Isolation and lies. It is by the spirit and truth that we are transformed into the image of Jesus and set free to live in line with all that is good in the world. And it is by isolation and lies that we are deformed and enslaved to a life of evil and death. 
The devil's pattern is isolation and lies. But consistently, we see the Lord moving through spirit and truth. We need to talk about this for a minute. Because when we say spirit, we import a lot of ideas. I want to maybe uh, talk about this in the realm of presence. Because that's what we see in scripture over and over and over. Um, Spirit and truth, you could also say presence and reality. We talked about reality last week. What is reality? Well, it is. It is. What truly is, that is reality. What is spirit? Well, it's presence. Dr. Gordon Fee, a theologian, New Testament scholar, he defines uh, the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God is God's empowering presence. Now think about what it means to be human. Before you, you maybe get confused by that definition, say, wait a minute, spirit and presence, I thought the spirit was this ethereal thing that God breathed in me. You've taught us about ruach. What, is, what are we talking about here? Think about presence for a minute. When you think about what it means to be human, the immaterial essence of your existence There's something about what it means to be present and to be separated and distant that will come into play. There's something about being who you actually are, who you were created to be, uh, this immaterial essence of what it means to be alive. And this is why the Bible talks about how God put his breath, his ruach into us, his spirit, his sustainable life, his animating force. We need spirit and truth. These things intuitively make sense to us. Uh, Imagine someone close to you. uh, You've had a tragedy in your life. Someone passes away. If someone just comes to you with truth, Wikipedia answers, fact, 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 here's my sources, it feels cold and distant. It might be true what they're saying, and it is true what they're saying, but, but there's something about presence that's not there. Whereas if you have someone that just comes and they have their presence, but without truth, it might feel nice, but it's not life-changing because it's not truth. It's, it's just mere presence. There's something missing there. There's something warm, but, but incomplete. Think about, again, uh, therapy, counseling. There's something about being present with someone who's guiding you towards truthfully thinking about what you need to be guided in, the lies that are in you, trying to unearth those. This is why parenting is so important. And we know that because we can look at examples of bad parenting. Distant parents who spin lies into their children. You'll never be good enough. You'll never draw well. You'll be just like your father, whatever it is. Those things weigh down on us. They, they deform who we are. Marriage is the same way. You need both presence, spirit, and truth in there. People being fully who they are, fully present, fully truthful best friend, any meaningful relationship. I wrote dog on here because maybe that's your closest relationship and that's fine. Your dog is truthful. It's not lying to you. Your dog's not spinning manipulation probably. I don't know your hateful dog, but in general, it's present and it's kind and loving. I can tell right now there's some of you like, I don't care about dogs and some of you have these warm smiles of like, oh, my dog is truthful and present with me. Yay. It's okay. Think about this though. We were talking about this in our guys' Bible study Wednesday night. What about things you do? Have you ever, uh, as a parent, I can be with my kids seven hours a day and absolutely not present with them. Have you experienced this? You've played a game with your kids, you've changed their diapers, you've unloaded the dishwasher, you did some sort of task with them, and you weren't actually there at all. You weren't present. It's like part of you, who you are, your spirit, your presence wasn't there with them. I know a painter, and uh, he does abstract painting stuff, and, and he has this phrase, he's like, I don't think this one's finished yet, and then he'll say, this one's finished, and I could not tell you any measurable difference between him seeing one as finished and unfinished, and what I think is so amazing about that is he would express how there is a time when I'm painting where I am present, 
and, and everything connects. And I know this is, it's like, this is what I was created to do. This is right. This is good. Maybe, maybe it's woodworking or your job, or maybe it is parenting for you. There's times when you're just like, this is right. And psychologists stuff can talk about flow and all these different things with human theory to get there. But in general, as a human, you know, there are moments in life when I'm hiking or, or I'm giving birth or whatever. It's like, I was so there. I was present. Everything was connecting in a way that is beyond words. There's something about us that understands that. Now think about bad presence, bad spirit. Have you ever met with someone, maybe a counselor, who's crushed you with lies? They weren't fully present. They were a bad presence or a parent, a teacher. Are there things you've done? Some sort of activity you've, you've taken up? Something that's begun to deform you? Drugs, porn, anger, harsh words, a grumpy demeanor. It's not fully present. It's not fully true. It starts deforming you. Presence and truth is either formative or the lack thereof. Isolation and lies is incredibly deformative. It breaks us apart. This is why Psalms 1, it starts off with, Hey, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The true word spoken by God. The law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. Psalms 1 and 2 is telling you, hey, you know the people that you hang around with that mess you up, that are messed up? Those people deform you with wickedness, with lies. They isolate you. You know what actually forms you? Being in truth. Being in God's presence. We see this in page 1 of the Bible. I think it's so fascinating. Genesis 1 and 2, you guys uh, love this verse. What does Genesis 1 say? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And what? What's the next character mentioned? God and then what? The Spirit of God hovered. This is how you hover over the waters. The Spirit of God hovered over. Why would the authors of Genesis, why would God inspire both characters to be there? Later on, we get that Jesus was there. Later on, we get that Jesus was always with them. But why in Genesis 1 is it about God created and the Spirit of God was hovering? Because of presence. Because you hear, wait a minute, it's not just some distant, disembodied deity that just poof is there. His hands are dirty. He's in it. He's hovering above the water. He is present with us. Spirit and truth. Presence and reality. We see this over and over and over. God seeking to be present with us. He appears over and over to guide people, to bring his presence in, to show them what's true. All the laws, all the guiding through Abraham, through Moses, through, through the Israelites, through, through David, through the prophets, through, through Solomon, just bringing them in and saying, hey, this is what's true. This is my presence. This is what the tabernacle, the temple was all about. It's about God's presence. It's about God being with us. The, the end hope in Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's all about presence. And we've been duped into this lie that we're isolated and distant. We have to go do something to get it. We have to go find it. We, we need to, to unearth it like it's this hidden thing. God's saying, no, 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 I've done, I'm done doing everything to be present with you, to bring you truth. This is why Jesus has said in Matthew 1, to be born of the what? He was born of the Holy Spirit, the holy presence of God. Jesus is fully the presence of God with man. This is why all the accounts of, of uh, Jesus being baptized says what? The what descends on him? The Spirit. The presence of God is with him. Why was that written to us? Why do we see that in every story? 
Can't we just assume because it already says that he's got God's presence? No, we know when the Spirit of God is there, God's presence is there. God is with man. We've distanced, we've rebelled, we've had to isolate, sow fig leaves, hide behind trees. We've had to hide from the presence of God, and God gets in, gets dirty over and over and over, saying, no, 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 the presence of God will be with man. Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The entire story of the Bible is about presence, about God's presence being with us, and about how death and isolation and sin and corruption and wickedness is all found when we rebel and we separate from the presence of God. But life, life is found, true life, what it means to be human, what it means to have morality. When we look to the Lord and say, no, 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 your presence, being with you is what's right. This is why Jesus says to the woman at the well, we covered it in John 4, true worshipers will worship in what? Spirit and truth. In the presence of God, fully consumed by His truth. That's where true worship lies. That's why we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs together. To overcome the lies of the enemy. To overcome the things that have been sown into us all week that we don't even know because we don't know what we don't know. And so we sing these songs. We gather together. We read the Word to say, hold on, there is truth here. There's something here that I'm missing because the devil is sowing isolation and lies. That's why it matters that we gather. Please, please hear this. We talk about isolation often. I I know because I experience this. Every Wednesday, the shepherds pray over a list of people that have visited our church or that have been members here since they were born or who are four times old as me and that, I don't think that math works, but they're older than me and, and they've been here forever and we pray over them. And consistently, the people that isolate, that have been isolated, not just from our church, but in general, we follow up and they're, they're doing nothing. They're going nowhere. We consistently notice that they're struggling, they're falling away, they're hurting, they're isolating, they're living lies, they're relapsing. Church isn't some magic bullet, some magic pill to fix your life. Everything has been about the presence of God. The presence of God has been brought to us in Jesus. Jesus comes and he says, uh, it is the spirit who gives life, John 6, 63. The flesh is of no help. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit, the presence of God, everything you need, and life. In Jesus' words. This is why Jesus says, if you abide in my words, you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Jesus is spirit and truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one has a shot at being near the Father except through me. These are Jesus' words. Because Jesus wants us to know that he is spirit, God's presence. He is truth. This is why he tells the disciples, receive the spirit. He breathes on them. God's presence. This is why we went through Acts six years ago, seven years ago, and the whole thing was not the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit falling, God's presence moving as it dwells in bodies amongst humans. The devil is consistently trying to pull you away, to isolate you through lies, over and over and over. And and what's so frustrating about it is we don't know, we miss it. And so what do we do? How are we going to not be those people? Jesus helps us as we read Matthew 4. I'm going to read through Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I'm going to make some stops along the way to add some commentary of things we might, might miss. And we're going to talk about what Jesus does and then how we respond to that. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus was led by the presence of God, the power of God indwelling in him right after he was baptized. And as a, as a quick note, now nah, we'll get there, never mind. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the adversary, the slander. And after fasting for 40 days and nights, he was hungry like you are. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, challenging who God is and his identity. What just happened before this? Jesus was what? He was baptized. And what does God say? As soon as he baptized, Jesus comes out of the water and a loud voice declares, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Matthew pulls us in and says, Hey, this is God's Son. First temptation of Satan is to say, If if you really are, hold on. Is that who you are? If you really are a mother, maybe you should do these things. If you're a good pastor, maybe you should take more time and do more meetings and do more things. If you really are going to be dating ever again, maybe you should do these things. If you're going to get a better job, taking the identity and subtly twisting it. Hey, maybe you should do what I say. Command these stones to become lows. Jesus, he answers from Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Spirit and truth. We need God's truth. We need his presence. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is fascinating. The holy city, this is where God's presence is supposed to be, in this city. And on the pinnacle of the temple, and we already discussed, temple is is God's presence. It's there. Jesus is on the top of this thing with the devil, the tempter. Here's what he says. If you are the son of God, if this is who you really are, if this is your destiny, throw yourself down. For it is written, ah, devil starts to twist scripture now. So interesting. It is written in Psalms. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Uses scripture directly. And this is, by the way, this is a new tactic. All the Bible, I had so many scriptures point this, but all the Bible talks about false prophets, people using the words of God, twisting them. In fact, this is what gets Jesus the most fired up with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the religious leaders, is twisting the word of God, misinterpreting it. So the devil comes in and says, hey, actually, the Bible says this. You want to to follow the Bible? Here's some Bible for you, Jesus, if you're really the son of God. Now, interesting, does the devil knows the destiny here. You're the son of God. You're, You're the Messiah. You're supposed to come and do these things. Why don't you do it your way? Why don't you throw yourself off the holy place? You know what everyone's going to see? All the Jews are going to see this Messiah dude jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, the very top, and he's going to jump off, and they're going to be like, whoa, crazy man, hop, God stopped him, he must be Messiah, poof, you don't actually have to die, everyone believes, done deal, wash it, gas it, give me the keys. Do you see that? How interesting is it that he challenges his destiny, what God's called him to do? No, 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 do it your way, do it this way, you don't need to follow God. He will command his angels. You won't fight a strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Because God is God. He recognizes that actually who is God? God is God. And I obey and follow him. Again the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Rome and, and all the different kingdoms. And he said to him, all these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Dude, catch this. Sorry, I just called you dude. But dudes, dudettes, catch this. Jesus doesn't challenge this claim. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you don't have any power. No, no, no. You're not in charge. God's in charge. Jesus, Jesus allows that. Why? Because he's been called the rule of this earth before. Archon. He says, I'll give all these to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus says, be gone, Hasatan. Say, be gone, Satan. Sounds good. Be gone, Satan. Hey, do you remember another time in Matthew where Jesus said, be gone, Satan, or get behind me, Satan? To Peter, right? 
this kind of, it starts poking holes in this idea that there's just this one Satan, blah, 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 he's the big guy. No, 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 it's, it's an accuser, one who's going against the will of God. He says, get behind me, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve him only. The devil works for isolation and lies, twisting scripture, weaving these things so crafty, and we live as if this doesn't impact us. Like, why would we believe this doesn't hit us and the devil doesn't have the same strategy for us that we've seen all through scripture over and over and over, warping who God is, warping what it means to be human, warping what it means to have morality, to live, to have the good life. But how does Jesus respond? Is Jesus anxious, angry, tense? Jesus is a non-anxious presence. He responds with truth. He responds with the Spirit of God. As the Spirit led him, he responds with truth in the presence of God, consistently pointing to God as the Father, as the one who's actually true. We are formed in Christ through presence and truth. Spirit and reality. That is life. Dallas Willard says this, As we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is that in our thoughts that we first move towards the renovation of the heart. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Catch this. Spiritual formation in Christ moves towards a total interchange of our ideas and images for His. Who is it and what is it that forms the ideas and images of your life? What is it that speaks into the patterns of you? Are you filled with the words of Christ, with His presence, with His truth? Because Jesus came and died and resurrected, defeating sin, so that through our faith in Him, His presence would be put in us, That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, that his spirit comes in us through our faith as we believe in him. And then we have the presence of God. Do you live like you have the presence of God in you? His very presence. Not some God on a mountain you have to go achieve or do enough Bible study and write enough journal entries and get a new flowery devotion. His presence is in you. Do you abide and dwell in him? This is Jesus' words to us. Abide and dwell. How do we do this? A few quick points on maybe ways we can practice this as we go. And then we're going to have a time response. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Talk about His presence in us. We mention here often prayer, scripture, and church. Those are three home-based things. And if you're taking notes, if you're thinking, write these things down. Because I promise that this is where evil starts with you. This is where the devil starts. Lies about how you should approach prayer. Lies about how you should approach church. Lies about how you should approach the Bible. All these disciplines and postures move us away from lies and isolation and into the presence of truth. The most obvious example is Jesus. That's what Jesus just did. That's that's how Jesus approached these things. I would encourage you this week to begin saying the Lord's Prayer. If you're just like, man, prayer is difficult, or or maybe I, I pray wrong and I say the wrong things, or I make it all about me, that's fine. Say the Lord's Prayer. Specifically, I think it's interesting that Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because Jesus knew that we would have temptations, that we would be drawn into evil, to isolation, to lies. Prayer puts us under the secure truth that the loving Father is over us. And prayer immediately pulls us away from isolation, not only because we're standing before the loving Father, but because the loving Father guides us in his prayer to say, hey, our Father who's in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. It's a communal prayer. You pray it with other people. It's okay to pray it by yourself. I'm not saying not to. But it draws us in. Hold on. What, what, about, what about other people's needs? What, what, how am I forgiving them? How am I thinking about others? Interesting that, that Jesus knew when he taught us to pray that we would need to see the Father, his truth, reality. And we'd be pulled out of isolation by seeing the community, which leads us right into church, recognizing that we are not meant to be alone. As Genesis tells us, God says, it's not good that man's alone. And God has been working together for a community, a kingdom, a people, all through Scripture. As we land on Colossians 3.16, here's some real specific thoughts on this. Colossians 3.16, let the words of Christ dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It says to let them dwell richly in you. As we talked about last week, would you say it's the words of Christ that dwell richly in you, or is it the words of someone else? Even someone good. Maybe it's the words of John Piper, or Dallas Willard, or Ben Shapiro, or Donald Trump. Are those words the words that dwell richly in you? There's no life there, because Jesus says it's the words of Christ. His words are spirit and life. Paul tells us to let the words of Christ dwell richly in us. I love this snarky little quote from John Piper, or JP, as those who know us know him well call him. He doesn't know I call him JP. Uh, John Piper says, Satan devotes 168 hours a week trying to deceive you. Do you think you can maintain a renewed mind with a 10-minute glance at God's book once a day? The calling, I hope that doesn't make you feel guilty. Get out the guilt gun. Well, I do 11 minutes in the Word. No, no, no. The point is, are you really dwelling richly in God's Word? Because that's where truth is. Jesus calls us to abide. I love how Colossians 3.16 moves into teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. We are a speaking and a hearing people. Christians, church, you are called to speak the truth of God to others. Ephesians goes on to say, speak truth in love in Ephesians 4. Is that your posture? Do you have testimony you share? Do you speak the truth of God to other people because it is truth, it is reality, you have his presence in you? Is that a posture you have because his word so richly dwells in you that it's something you speak? And are you willing to listen, to hear from others? Is that the relationship we have to speak truth in love? Or is, is our habit to just consume, to be negative and crotchety, to live our own lives and never love each other enough to actually challenge each other with the words of Christ? Let the words of Christ dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thank- thankfulness in your hearts to God. There is spirit and truth, God's presence. There is isolation and lies. All of us are either being formed into the image of Christ as one body through him pulling us out of isolation and lies into truth by his presence. Or we're trajecting towards death, chaos, disorder, tension, because our home base where we tend to dwell is isolation and lies. If you're in here this morning, if you're you're listening from home, if you're listening this weeks later, and and that hits you, say, man, isolation, lies, that, what, how will I know, what will I do? The answer is to look to Jesus. As we say every week, look to Jesus. Jesus is everything. Be here. Show up. Go to a gospel preaching church. I don't care if you come here. Go to some church that's preaching the gospel, that's looking at King Jesus and saying Jesus is everything. And get with his believers because that is where his presence is. Spirit and truth. His presence is in you. It's with his body, his people. That's the only life. As you question who is God, what does it mean to be human, what is the good life, all those things find their answers in Jesus because he is the full presence of God and he is fully truth. Jesus told us, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to have two responses during this time. Uh, the band's going to come up and play, and we're just going to have a couple minutes to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. But, but before you come and get the elements, we'll do that a little bit later. Just take time to sit for a few minutes. Open your hands and imagine your relationship with prayer, Scripture, and truth. Do the words of Christ dwell richly among you? Do you speak truth in love? Do you receive those words from others? Do you have a healthy, what you would call a positive dwelling relationship with the Lord through prayer, with His Word, His truth in Scripture, with His body, with the church? If not, open your hands to the Lord, repeat His words. You are the way, the truth, and the life, King Jesus. I trust you. This is our response this morning. Open our hands, growing in the Lord, because only in Him, only in Jesus, do we find truth, do we find presence, what it means to be human. Let's pray. God, guide us this morning as we respond. I pray your spirit would continue to, to cast out the lies, the isolation of evil, of the devil, Satan. God, I pray that you would be pulling us in your presence. Thank you that your word is constantly showing us what it means to be human. Each of us individually, each of us as one body, through Jesus Christ. We worship you now. We trust you to guide us in response. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. If you need someone to pray with, there'll be people on the sides. I'll be up here.